All right. We did better tonight than I thought we would, I'll be honest. It's so beautiful outside, I was like, it's going to be me preaching to my wife. <laughs> and maybe Chad, you know. <laughs> so, glad to see everybody make it out tonight. Hey, we are in uh, Isaiah 24. We are just cruising right along through this, through this book. Uh, we are... Uh, you know, we've been going through, for six, eight weeks now, we've been going through all the, the burdens, all the oracles, the heavy messages that Isaiah had for the neighboring nations, uh, the neighbors of Israel. And so now we, we, uh, he changes his focus a little bit. Uh, we titled this Isaiah's Apocalypse. So this is from chapter 24, where we're at tonight, all the way through chapter 27, uh, he's going to... He's going to get into glimpses of the end times, right? Even though he's touched on it a little bit throughout the book, this is where he really starts to, you know, laser focus on what the end times are going to look like. Uh, the, the time of Jacob's trouble is a term that uh, we'll see. Um, the, the tribulation is another term we, we throw around in the church. Or, you know, the apocalypse, the end times, whatever you want to call it. That's what he's, he's looking at. It, he's looking at the events that precede the, uh, the return and reign of, of Jesus on earth. So there's a lot of different views when it comes to this stuff. And depending on your tradition that you maybe grew up in or books you've read or movies you've watched, right, you have different ideas of what um, these events will look like. Uh, I'm going to just kind of give you a, a jet tour real quick of some of the major um, schools of thought when it comes to this stuff. Uh, basically, there's, there is a, a handful of, of major viewpoints, and then within those, there's some you know, variation uh, that we'll get into later. But um, one of the big ones is uh, a premillennial viewpoint. Okay, so this would be, um, basically, there's a, a handful of things that, you know, summarize this view. Uh, number one, that world history is divided into, uh, like, seven different dispensations or eras, uh, and the last of which results in the construction or the reconstruction of Israel as a nation, right? So there was... There, were, uh, th there was this period where the Romans ruled the earth, there's this church age, and then there's this period where Israel is, is rebuilt and becomes a nation again, which is something we've seen in our time, in our lifetimes. Uh, they, uh, the premillennial view also is that uh, the Bible is almost always literal. Uh, there's a, you know, there are a series of world events that... Um, bring about a seven-year tribulation period. Or, you know, that's what the, the end times are seen as, the seven-year period of, of tribulation. Uh, the church will be spared either all of that by a pre-tribulation rapture. That means Jesus takes all the Christians up to heaven with him before the tribulation starts. Or he does it midway through, mid um, 
midway through the tribulation, three and a half years in. Uh, this group also believes that the, the Antichrist will persecute anybody who doesn't worship him. Uh, Jesus will return. Satan will be bound. Christ will reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. At the end of which, Satan will be loose. The nations are deceived. Uh, there's a small battle, a final judgment, and heaven, new heavens and new earth are created. Hope you're taking notes. Right? So this is, this is, uh, th- these are all the major viewpoints of a, a premillennial stance. There's also, uh, the other big one is a- amillennial. And that would be, this is held by uh, the Catholic Church, uh, certain branches of Lutheran, uh, Anglican, Reformed, Messianic Jews, a lot of Messianic Jews believe this. Basically, they believe that all the references that Jesus makes of, of, you know, in the kingdom, it will be like this. They believe all of that is just spiritual, right? There's no literal kingdom. It's all spiritual. Uh, They believe Satan has already been bound. The devil is not really a factor in in the day-to-day workings of the world. Uh, all the apocalyptic scripture uh, is symbolic. So Isaiah, Ezekiel, Revelation especially, all that stuff is symbolic. It's not literal. Uh, they believe a, a Revelation specifically is, is all about the fall of Rome in A.D. 70, and it was kind of written in code. Uh, and they believe that Jesus will return and take all the believers on earth shut out the lights on this planet and that's it. The end. Um, another viewpoint is uh, post-millennial. Okay? Hope you're taking notes on all this because there's going to be a test later. But post-millennial, this is basically, <laughs> they believe that the, uh, the second coming of Christ will come after a thousand year period where the church and Christianity just dominates the planet, where Christian ethics and, and charity reign, right? When Christians really just take over everything and make the world a better place for a thousand years in a row, and then that's when the kingdom will start. Uh, this was a big part of this was at the heart of the, uh, the Second Great Awakening, is what we call it, back in the 1800s, early 1800s. The people that believed this, they felt, they felt like it's our job as Christians to make the kingdom come. And the way we make the kingdom come is we make the world way better. So it's not, not so bad, right? That's not a bad way of thinking. But so these are the, like the Quakers and the people that um, uh, led the, the abolition movement. Uh, people who uh, campaigned for, for women to have the right to vote, for prison reform. Lots of good things came out of this movement. Without giving too much commentary on all these different views, the problem with this view is that will the world ever be so perfect that now we've basically made heaven on earth? No. It's a noble cause, noble um, idea, uh, but it, you know, there's a problem with it. Uh, and then the fourth view is pan-millennial. 
Uh, and this is basically that people who they believe that Jesus is coming back at some point. Um, there's going to be judgment at some point, and hopefully everything just kind of pans out, you know. Um, and that's where a, most, a lot of people are, right? We don't know what to think of all this end time stuff. Um, hopefully it all pans out. Uh, so our view, just for the record, we, we tend to hold to the first view that I mentioned. We, we, we're pre-millennial. We believe that Jesus is literally going to have uh, set up his kingdom one day. Um, and I believe, personally, that the prophets, like Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and Joel, and Jeremiah, all these guys, they each gave us like a macro view, like a wide-angle lens view of the end-time events. And then the Apostle John was given a vision that was more micro view, right? He, a close-up view. Here's how that big picture, here's what it's going to look like, you know, in the day-to-day stuff. And that's what Revelation is. And Revelation is one of those books, uh, I know we're not, that's not what we're studying right now, but uh, you can't study Isaiah without Revelation. You know, they, they, they marry so well to each other. And Revelation is one of those books that a lot of people will say, well, it's all figurative, you can't understand it, or it's just too hard, it's not meant for us to, be, to understand it. And I just don't believe that. I don't believe that God put anything in his word to be such a mystery that, it, you know, so he could go, <laughs> you guys didn't figure that one out, did you? You know, he wasn't trying to hide, you know, secret things that you needed a decoder ring for, right? Uh, Revelation is, I think, fairly simple to understand. It breaks down basically like this. Uh, chapters 1 through 3 give us this picture of church history, because it's a series of letters that, that God sends out to the different churches, uh, you know, different regions and, and, and time periods. He's, he says, you know, the church of this place and this time, here's the issues you, you have, and here's what I think. Uh, and then chapters 4 through 5, you see that the church is in heaven. If you read through Revelation chapters 4 and 5, everything there happens in heaven. Well, when is the period when the church is in heaven altogether, right? That's after the after he takes us there, after we're raptured. As a matter of fact, after chapter 5, the church is not mentioned because we're in heaven with Jesus. And then chapter 6 through 19 describe the tribulation, describe the time of Jacob's trouble, the, the end times, the apocalypse, whatever you want to call it. All the, the judgments and the seals and all that stuff. Then you get into chapter 19, the second half of it, you see Jesus returns. We see the return of Jesus and the church. He brings the church with him. You know that song that, oh, when the saints come marching in, I want to be in that number. You remember that song? Yeah, we come marching in when Jesus comes and kicks butts and takes names, you know. Um, so he, he brings, he comes in, he, there's a small battle, he sets up his throne for a thousand years, the earth is all better. And then chapter 20, uh, Satan is, is uh, let loose for a short time and then dealt with. And then chapters 21 and 22 describe a new heaven, 
and a new earth, and everybody lives happily ever after. The end. That's basically it. I don't know if you knew that. There's a new heaven and a new earth, right? But God is, his plan is that, you know, we've messed this one up enough that at some point he goes, you know what, let's just start fresh. And that's what's going to happen. All that being said, chapter 24, where we're at tonight, is a zoomed out macro view of what we call the tribulation, of what chapters 6 through 19 of Revelation describe. So we're going to get into that. Before we do, let's pray, see if God will help us understand it. Lord, we thank you again tonight for uh, bringing us together. Thank you for blessing us with this beautiful weather, uh, with a place where we can gather safely, securely, freely uh, to worship you. Lord, we, um, we're getting into the, the thick of things. We're getting into um, the stuff that people all over the world argue about and debate about. We're not interested in that. We don't want to win arguments or debates. We just want to know what you would have us know. Help us to learn what it is that you want us to learn through these things, through this series of events, so that we can know you better, we can serve you better, and we can be closer to you. We'll pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Isaiah 24, verse 1. It says, Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts it, uh, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. This word distorts, it means to, uh, to flip over or to, or to turn over. It's the word that you use to describe how a plow like slices through the, the earth, right? And it flips the ground over. It tears it up, it makes a mess, but it results in good things, right? To plow the earth over, to flip it over, uh, that's, how you get some, it, that's how you prepare it for something new, prepare it for, for new life. And it says the Lord is going to do that. Uh, distorts its surface and scatters its inhabitants. Verse 2, And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. So Isaiah is describing a time when, when things are going to be flipped upside down, right? And when your current position, whatever it is, doesn't matter. Nobody's going to be exempt, right? The, the creditor and the debtor are going to be in the same situation, right? The people and the priest, the servant and the master. Nobody's exempt from what is coming. Verse 3, it says, The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for the, load, uh, the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world fades and withers, the exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. So Isaiah is pretty clear right up front, right? He's like, bad stuff's coming, 
but we played a hand in this, right? Our own sins are what is bringing this on us. From the very beginning, back in Genesis, first couple chapters of the Bible, you see that uh, Adam and Eve bring this thing called the curse upon the earth, right? When they ate of the fruit, when they, they did the one thing that God said don't do, they brought the curse on the earth. But it's not just from Genesis, it's, it's an ongoing thing. That's not, it's easy to point our fingers at them, like if they hadn't done that, we would have been perfect, right? We, we would have been okay. But we, we've still heaped judgment upon ourselves. It's not just them. Uh, Numbers 35, uh, verse 33, it says this, it says, Do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land. An atonement cannot be made for the land on which the blood has been shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. So God told the people of Israel through Moses, he says, look, yeah, Adam and Eve, they started this thing, but every time you've shed blood, you have polluted the land. You have brought the curse back into full effect again. And has there ever been a period in history where mankind has not shed innocent blood? Not that I'm aware of, right? Romans 8 tells us that, um, that nature or creation is eagerly awaiting the end. The stuff that we're reading about tonight and in Revelation, the whole planet is eagerly awaiting that, that creation because creation was subjected to futility and not willingly, is what Paul says. Right? When we brought the curse onto earth, all of nature didn't have a part in that. Only we did. We, we created it because we were the caretakers of the earth. And we brought sin and death into the world. And so all of creation has been groaning, it says, looking forward to the time when, when it will be set free from from slavery to corruption. That's in Romans uh, 8, 20 and 21. The whole planet is just going, when will these dumb, hairless monkeys be done? And God will straighten everything out. Isaiah 24, verse 5, it says, uh, The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants. Now, I'm not going to, you know, get started on, like, the Green New Deal and tree hugging and all that kind of stuff. But we are supposed to be the caretakers of the earth, right? Um, you can have your own views about uh, climate change and pollution and all that. But God, I don't think God looks favorably on us purposely defiling his creation in any way. Uh, but he says, the earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. So we, uh, we broke laws, we broke an everlasting covenant, the, the covenant that God made with all of mankind. So the trouble that's coming is because we chose to ignore God's laws, right? 
We, we brought it on ourselves. I, I make this joke fairly regularly, and some of you have heard me say it, but I don't believe in atheists um, because I believe everyone knows there is a God. It's just a matter of whether we want to admit it or not because the moment I admit there's a God, now I'm accountable to him. And if I choose to ignore the law of gravity, I'm free to do that. I can claim that there is no law of gravity. I have that freedom, but my body will still pay the consequences if I fall off a ladder or jump off my roof, right? No matter what my unbelief or belief in gravity says, the law is still there. And so mankind, we've tried to ignore the law. We've tried to change the rules, tried to, tried to be our own gods, right? So if I just pretend God isn't there and I make myself my own God, then now I'm not accountable to him. And, and what we've done is um, we've moved from, I'm trying to think how to word it. Uh, I remember I took a, sociology class one time that talked about uh, uh, the difference between morals and mores. Right, so a moral is, is a, something that is defined by a third party. Right, like your family has morals that mom or dad instilled in the kids. Right, we believe this because mom and dad told us this is how it is. Um, and most of the world have morals based on a third party, a higher party, higher power. Uh, you know, the Lord laid out a series of basic things, right? Like you should not murder. You should not covet. Uh, you should not steal. And these are all things that almost every society on earth has agreed on that these are bad things. Those are morals. A more is, is whatever a culture agrees on. There's no third party that, like, you know, spelled it out. We just all kind of settled on it. All right, so a more would be, like, um, there are things that this generation approves of that their grandparents' generation did not approve of. Now, there's not been, like, one person who came along and said, this is what we all think now. But the generation, the population, the nation has shifted, and they have these mores now. Do you follow me? So we have moved from morals, things that God says, this is how it is. And we've moved to mores. This is what we say is how it is. We've all agreed on this, or the majority has. And Isaiah says the earth is polluted by its inhabitants because they have moved from morals to mores. They have moved from doing what God says to whatever they feel as a majority is right. Verse 6, it says, Therefore a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, 
And few men are left. We're going to do a little bouncing back and forth between Isaiah and Revelation. In Revelation 16, it says this. Remember, Isaiah is giving us this big picture view. Revelation gives us more of the detail. Revelation 16, verse 8, it says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. So both Isaiah and Revelation uh, describe something happens with the sun, and, and people are scorched with fire, with heat. We'll go back to Isaiah 24, verse 7. It says, The new wine mourns, the vine decays, all the merry-hearted sigh. The gaiety of tambourines ceases. The noise of revelers stops. The gaiety of the harp ceases. They do not drink wine with song. Strong, uh, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. So he's describing a, a time where, you know, we, all the, the thing, the, the leisureliness of life is going to go out the window pretty quickly, right? There, in, the, in the last days, in the tribulation, I don't think there will be any, like, Instagram celebrities, you know? Uh, that won't be a thing. Kim Kardashian will not be who everybody's turning to uh, during that time. Uh, in the tribulation to come, no amount of booze is going to help people escape the reality of it. That's why everybody's like, you know, mourning over the wine, like the, the wine doesn't help us anymore. Verse 10, it says, The city of chaos is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may enter. So people are going to have to bar their doors against looters. And You know, for many of us, we're already there, right? We, we lock our doors because the world is crazy. But if you're old like me, you remember a time when growing up, our front door did not have a lock just wasn't a thing. We had a shotgun and a German Shepherd, <laughs> but if you chose to come in the door, that's on you, you know. Um, but now I think most of us probably lock our doors, and there's coming a time when everyone is going, you're going to have to. Verse 11, uh, there is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom. The gaiety of the earth is banished. There's an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. When society collapses, that's what he's describing. This is when, when everything breaks down. We're, we're, and we're getting, I think, a picture of this already, right? With our, our uh, you know, shipment problems and all of that stuff. When society collapses, who's going to be going to work to make all of the conveniences that we distract ourselves with? Right? We've already gotten a picture of how that works. Right? Uh, fast, convenience food is not fast or convenient anymore. And when the world is falling apart, nobody's going to be showing up at the distillery Nobody's showing up at the pharmaceutical plant to make, you know, nobody's showing up at the Netflix studio 
to make the show to distract you from what's going on. Verse 12, it says, Desolation is left in the city, and the gate is battered to ruins. For thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples, as the shaking of an olive tree, as the gleanings when the grape harvest is over. By the end of the tribulation, uh, earth's population is going to be a fraction of what it once was. And Isaiah describes it as, you know, what's left on the grapevine after the harvest. When you go out to the olive tree and you shake it, there's still, you know, a little bit on there. Revelation 6, verse 8 says that one-fourth of the earth will be killed by sword and hunger. And then Revelation 8 says that um, something ruins all the fresh water, and, and many die from the waters. Then Revelation 9, verse 15 says, And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. I'm not great with fractions, but I'm pretty sure we're roughly over half of the world's population just from those three things being wiped out. Revelation 9, verse 20, it says, The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship the demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. So even though half half the population of the planet is going to die in a short period of time. And not only that, if you hold the view that I hold, that the church is raptured out of here before this stuff happens. It's only half the population of the people who are left after all the Christians are gone. And still, there are, most people will not repent when all this stuff happens. You know, some people are under the impression, and I used to be one of these people, uh, that I'm just going to do my own thing. And uh, if the tribulation comes, then I'll get serious about Jesus. Right? That was, I didn't think of it that way. I, I basically thought, like, I'm going to do my own thing. And then when I'm like 99 and on my deathbed, then, you know, after I've had all the fun, then I'll become a Christian. That's my plan. But here's the thing, you know, if, if, you, um, if you can't follow Jesus now, when it's easy, it's never been easier. Uh, what makes you think you'll do it when it's a life or death situation? When you could be killed for it? Most people left on the earth just won't. Just won't change their mind. Just won't repent. They're, 
They're just going to go down with the ship. Isaiah 24, verse 14. It says, They raise their voices, they shout for joy. They cry out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. So there are going to be some people during the tribulation period who believe in Jesus during that time. There are going to be people who sat in church for a long time, heard the stuff, never quite believed it, and then really quickly are going to go, oh man, that's the thing they were talking about. And they'll believe. And they're going to rejoice at Christ's return. Verse 15, it says, Therefore glorify the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. But I say, this is Isaiah, right? He said, he's, he's having a vision. He sees in the far future all this stuff happens. There are going to be some people who are rejoicing because the Lord is returning. And he says, but I say, woe to me. Woe to me, alas for me. The treacherous deal treacherously, and the treacherous deal very treacherously. He sees uh, the, the tribulation saints rejoice but he's broken over, uh, brokenhearted over how many people are going to be deceived. How many people are going to reject the Lord outright, even with all the evidence in front of them. How many people are going to be dealt treacherously with. Verse 17, it says, Terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. For the windows above are opened, and the foundation of the earth, or foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder, the earth is split through, the earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack. For its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall never to rise again. Where it says that the earth reels to and fro, the word here in the Hebrew, it, it literally just means to wobble, right? And it's, uh, I don't know if you've ever played with a top. Some of you remember these, right? You would spin them, and they would spin really smoothly for a while, and then as they kind of ran out of steam, they would wobble a little bit. And sometimes they would like start going smooth again. And eventually, once the wobble gets bad enough, then it just careens off and it's, it's done. Do you know that the earth is, um, currently, is tilted at a 23.5 degree, uh, 23.5 degrees off axis. The earth's not straight up and down, it's something like this. Scientists uh, believe that there was some sort of cataclysmic event, like a worldwide flood maybe, that caused the poles of the planet to shift. The whole planet is spinning off axis. And physicists and geologists alike predict a future pole shift with that's going to have cataclysmic results. Like they see it coming. 
and they're not sure how the planet's going to survive it. God, it says here, is going to make the earth wobble like a top running out of steam. Because it is, right? When I was talking about uh, pollution and taking care of the earth earlier, um, you know, I believe we should be responsible with what we have. But I also believe that God put just enough resources on this rock to last us until the thing starts to wobble, you know, until he's done with it. But that's for another time. Verse 21, it says, So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and, and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. And after many days, they will be punished. So he talks about how God is going to deal with the host of heaven on high. See, God is going to deal with Satan and his demons. Revelation 20 describes it like this. Verse 1, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed after these things, he must be released for a short time. And then verse 10, it says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Same thing Isaiah is describing. Isaiah 24, verse 23. We'll see if we can wrap this chapter up. It says, then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. God's glory will be so bright that it will put, put the sun and moon to shame is what Isaiah describes. In Revelation, if you read to the end, in the New Jerusalem, there won't even be a need for a sun because God's glory will light the whole thing. I know that's a lot to wrap your brain around, and I don't expect anybody to like fully understand it because here's the reality. I've been studying this stuff for two-plus decades and I still run across stuff where I'm like, eh, I don't know what that, <laughs> I don't know what he means by that one. Um, I'm still trying to sort it out myself. But there are some takeaways that I think we can apply. In 79 AD, the explosion of Mount Vesuvius wiped out the Roman cities of Pompeii and uh, Herculean, Herculaneum. Uh, and it was so sudden that the residents of those cities 
we've, we still are finding, through archaeological digs, we're finding their remains encased in volcanic ash. And, you know, and, and we see that most of those people were killed not hunkering down. They were out doing their normal activities. There were people at what would have been the supermarket. There were people out doing what would have been their job. People in their homes. It happened suddenly. Uh, the saddest part is that um, these people did not have to die like they did. Scientists have confirmed that, that and ancient Roman writers record that there were weeks of rumbling and uh, shakings preceding the actual explosion of that mountain. There was even an ominous plume of smoke uh, clearly visible for hundreds of miles for weeks before it actually blew. If only pe the people had been able to read and respond to the warning. That was the thing. In Matthew 24, verse 3, Jesus, it says this, uh, it says, Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? And Jesus told them, Don't let any, anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. That word there in verse 7, nation against nation, in the Greek, that's ethnos the ethnos. That means race against race. And in the last days, racial conflict is going to be a big thing. Nation will go to war against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. Kingdoms, are, that's the political stuff. That's the, the countries, right? There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all this is only the first of the birth pains, with more to come. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days, before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. So, why do we study all this stuff that's confusing, and, and if we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, none of it affects me anyway? Uh, we study this to warn people who don't have a relationship with Jesus. You know, because growing up, this stuff used to scare me. And now it excites me. Now I can't wait to see this stuff happen. Not out of like a morbid, sick-minded thing where I want to see people suffer, but I, I can't wait to see my Lord. Because here's the thing, if reading about the end times, if reading uh, Revelation specifically, 
If it scares you, you're doing it wrong. Revelation 1, verse 3, it says this, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. You're blessed, but you should be blessed by this. And if you're not, that's a problem. We're running long. I'm going to read you a couple passages and we'll close it out. 2 Peter 3, verse 3. It says, Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth, following their own desires. They will say, What happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. So you keep talking about the end times. Where is it? Verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire. The earth and everything in it will be found to deserve judgment. And so, verse 14, Dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in His sight. So we study this stuff because, for one, it's going to benefit somebody someday who doesn't know the Lord right now, but will. And in the meantime, we, Peter says, you know this is happening. It should change how you live. What sort of life should you be leading? I believe we need to concentrate on moving from mores, from what the mass population agrees is okay, back to morals, what God says is okay. Paul put it this way in Colossians 3, and we'll close with this. Verse 5, it says, So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lusts, and evil desires. Don't be greedy. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger and rage and malicious behavior and slander and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you've stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. That's the goal. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you so much for being patient with us. Thank you that uh, you preserved your word. We can look into it and, and know you better, that we can know our Creator and try to be more like you. God, we just pray that uh, anyone listening here or online that is worried about these things, that doesn't have a relationship with you or doesn't understand, Lord, that um, you would put people in their way to help answer the questions uh, and that you, more than anything, your spirit would impress upon them their need for you. Lord, we, uh, we're thankful that you love us so much, that you made a way that we can be with you for eternity. And we pray that the whole world would turn to you. We know the time is short, but Lord, we, we can't wait to be with you. We pray that you come and come quickly. 
And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, ready?